Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation that I'm going to call Jesus Quote Bubble. The words we're hearing put into Jesus' mouth, and the words allegedly that came from his mouth. There's been some ironic timing, and maybe not so surprising, based on the fact that 2016 is an election year. But just today on Facebook, some friends shared with me a uh, clip from Jimmy Kimmel's late-night talk show, where Kimmel had had an actor dressed up to look like Jesus, reading what is called on the theweek.com's article, actual quotes from presidential candidates coming out of Jesus' mouth, and it's sacrilegious. The sacrilegious part, in my opinion, is not dressing up an actor to look like Jesus and having him read these words. The sacrilegious part are the words themselves. I saw another quote today from John Fugelsong. It says, My favorite Bible story is when Jesus feeds the multitudes after administering a drug test to make sure they deserve the food. It's in that spirit that I want to start this inappropriate conversation. Using some examples and calling out what I'm going to call the words people put into Jesus' mouth, the Jesus quote bubble. And the first one I want to refer to is actually a very interesting, frankly entertaining website called teapartyjesus.tumblr.com. And what they've done, I think I might have mentioned them before on inappropriate conversations, but I'm going to cite them directly now, is taken images that might have come from an illustrated Bible, Sometimes a children's Bible, sometimes more like the first Bible I got when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, having completed confirmation class, the United Methodist Church would give you a Bible when you were done, and it would have these very um, classical painting-like images, uh, different scenes. The one I want to cite first is, uh, could be a picture of Jesus having just uh, healed Jairus' daughter, uh, raising from death, presumably, the daughter of one of the heads of the synagogue. The quote bubble coming out of Jesus' mouth in this case, though, says, The only way to make your enemy a friend is to defeat them or kill them. Now, what makes the TeaPartyJesus.com site so interesting? What makes the quote bubbles, in my opinion, so impactful? It'd be easy pickings. It'd be fish in a barrel if they were just going with the current crop of Republican presidential candidates. But some of these are actually not politicians per se at all. They're coming from pastors. This one is a pastor named Ken Hutcherson, who on his own site, I'm presuming, uh, Hutch Post, uh, had that quote attributed to him. So it isn't, again, just politicians. It's clergy as well. But I will cite one politician because I think it gives us a really good example of what I'm talking about. It's Jesus at the moment of crucifixion hanging on the cross. And it could be the point in time where he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which would be ironic because in this case, that quote bubble has been replaced with the battle we're engaged in right now is same-sex marriage. Ultimately, that is the very foundation of our country, the family, what the family structure is going to look like. I'll die on that hill. This is Rick Santorum. Of course, Rick Santorum vowing to die on a hill of something that has really no direct impact on him or his life, unless he's a closeted homosexual or a confused bisexual, in which case maybe it does apply to his life. 
And But putting the concept of I'll die on that hill, this concept of people who are different from you having the same rights afforded to them, being put into Jesus' mouth on Calvary's hill. That's sort of kind of exactly, uh, exactly the point, I guess is how I would put it, of this Tea Party Jesus Tumblr page. And one more, just to make a smooth transition. This quote originally attributed to Herman Cain, probably four years ago during the presidential you know, nomination process for the Republican Party. Uh, it seems to me like that might have been the only time that we would have seen this much publicity for the words and ideas of Herman Cain. It's got Jesus saying this, those of us that are people of faith and, and strong faith have allowed the non-faith element to intimidate us into not fighting back. I believe we've been too passive. We have maybe pushed back, but as people of faith, we have not fought back. This is Jesus depicted at what I'm assuming is the Sermon on the Mount, based on the imagery that's there, standing on a hillside with a mountain top sort of even up beyond him, with a large multitude of people gathered around to listen. And I want us to make a comparison in this particular inappropriate conversation between this notion that we people of faith have not done enough to fight this non-faith element, we haven't fought back, with the actual words Jesus spoke at the Sermon on the Mount, because I think the irony is going to be palpable. And so what I want to do with this show is you know, cover a couple of ideas that I think are really important. Inappropriate Conversations 150 included a lot of scripture, and I'm going to do um, scripture reading again here. But again, like I've done at times in the past, I'd ask people who don't really have a faith to stick with me here, because everything that I'm going to say is at least purportedly attributed to Jesus. So let me provide a disclaimer that might make this acceptable for people who would prefer not to have to wrestle with the idea of whether there was an historic Jesus and whether the things that are attributed to him are some sort of uh, historically true statement or whether they're uh, the very words coming out of the mouth of God written to pen and paper or uh, some other you know, means of recording written word by, in this case, Matthew himself. I guess what I'm trying to do is deal with the issue of what happens when people are misquoted egregiously. What happens when we take a beloved figure, whether historical or fictional, and put very false, misleading words in their mouth? What if I were to, uh, for the sake of argument, purport to be quoting a fictional figure from the J.K. Rowling books saying, hey, in, in the third book, this is what Harry Potter said. And then I went on a long rambling quote that not only was not what was written down in those pages attributed to the fictional character of Harry Potter, but perhaps was the exact opposite of what that character's character is, for want of a better way of putting it. Or, or Hermione Granger, it doesn't really matter. I guarantee that in the, say, the nerd and geek community, if I were to misquote and misrepresent a fictional character like Harry Potter that badly, or Luke Skywalker or Yoda that badly, then we would have no patience for it whatsoever. There would be an immediate reaction. Uh, Spock didn't say that and never would have. Could, could be the outrage coming if you sullied Star Trek with some sort of misattribution. So even if you view Jesus of Nazareth as a 100% fictional character, or if you merely view that there's reason to doubt that the accounts in the gospel, that Matthew perhaps wasn't standing there with a voice-activated tape recorder, that we don't have that kind of veracity to the so eyewitness, quote-unquote, accounts that are represented by the gospels, 
Or if you believe that these are the inspired word of God and that inspiration from the Holy Spirit has corrected all errors so that this is quite literally the gospel, it doesn't really matter where your perspective was, one extreme, the other, or in the middle. I'm going to quote Jesus. I'm going to quote Jesus at length, and I want us to note how far away from Jesus the people who claim to speak for Jesus are. Jimmy Kimmel did a nice job in that bit in his late-night talk show of representing it, and the Tea Party Jesus Tumblr also does a really good job of making it just seem so starkly um, sacrilegious. seems like a good word for it to me, but however you would word it, wrong, I think, is the flavor that we're talking about here. The other thing I want to do, though, is I want to quote the Sermon on the Mount at length, completely, using modern English translations. I want to spend a little time, in other words, looking at the most current attempts to make these ancient texts readable and relatable to the English that we speak today. Because I'm opposed to what I would call the King James-only church movement, prominent among Baptists in particular of all flavors, not just Southern Baptists, that there's only one version of the Bible that counts, and it's the King James Version. And I wouldn't think it would be that hard for you to find a believer somewhere who thinks that the Bible was originally written not just in English, but in the King's English, and that all those foreign translations, the Latin that the Roman Catholic Church uses, the Greek the New Testament was written in, or the Hebrew, um, these are all just some sort of foreign plot, and that to them, the Bible was originally written in English, and in the English of the 16th century, which is you know, crazy. And frankly, there's reason to believe that there's enough error in the King James Version that has been corrected by subsequent archaeological findings and translations that it makes more sense to go with a more modern version. But I'll tell you one of the things I don't like, and I've said it before, um, talking about the way the uh, the more recent translations have been handled. One of my favorite word-for-word translations is, in, is the New American Standard Bible 1971, but it was revised in 1995, And as far as I can tell, the number one inspiration for that revision was putting in error, making error, making the Bible just a little bit more misogynistic than it actually is, um, eliminating some situations that make it kind of clear that, at least from the the original law in the Torah, that maybe a fetus isn't a full-fledged human being after all. All these errors were put in for essentially political reasons. And that sort of approach polluted both the New American Standard Bible, which at the time was an excellent word-for-word translation, and the New International Version has followed suit with that same sort of what I would call perversion. So I've found over my lifetime that the Good News Translation is, although a thought-for-thought rather than word-for-word translation, just about as good as any. And the message is probably the most recent modern English translation that has taken on some popularity because it does an idea-for-idea notion of bringing what we know now, again, based on the latest scholarship, and putting those words into languages and sometimes even um, comparisons, metaphors and similes that a modern audience would understand. And I want to begin this with the New Living translation. So I'm not going to break up my talk here from chapter to chapter, and I'm not going to put in any subheadings, and I'm certainly not going to make reference to verse numbers. I'm simply going to start at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, end at the end of Matthew chapter 7, something I've never done before, read the Sermon on the Mount through completely. It's just that the first chapter I share is going to be New Living Translation, the second one will be the message, and the third one will be the Good News Translation. It wouldn't surprise me if people who are very familiar with the Bible notice those shifts as they happen, but it also would not surprise me if somebody who is not at all familiar with the Bible 
really didn't see that there was some sort of jarring shift from one translation to another as I read through it. The other reason that I want to go with modern English translations is to lead me up into the different drummer segment where I plan to talk there about some of the history of biblical translations. I've said in the past in Inappropriate Conversations, both on the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations or the one for Walk the Earth, that the church historically has taken drastic steps to punish murder, burn at the stake even, people who have translated the Bible into English. This isn't just translating the New Testament from its original Greek to English that was viewed as a uh, mortal sin by Roman Catholicism in particular for all those years. Uh, Even the Latin Vulgate, which itself is a translation from Greek to Latin, translating that again into any sort of modern language that could be understood by common people was viewed as an egregious sin. So in some ways, if we go back in time to, say, 500, 600, 700 years ago, I'm going to share word for word what the modern English translations of Matthew's gospel in the Bible have to say that Jesus said. And I may have been committing a mortal sin if I were to do this same thing that many years ago. You go back six or seven centuries, and what I'm about to do might be the most inappropriate conversation I've ever done before, simply by, well, frankly, doing nothing more than just reading the Bible. There's one caveat I'll offer before I start. And that's that throughout this passage, there's a short intro and a a single verse at the end that sort of ends it. Everything else is spoken by Jesus. Make no mistake, I'm not in any way impersonating Jesus, taking on that persona, in other words. I'm not making any claims of divinity. I'm simply reading the script, so to speak, as the script is written. And this one is called the Sermon on the Mount. And I guess I'd have to say that if I have a favorite section of the Bible, this notion of favorite verse always struck me as a little bit odd. You're automatically out of context the second you answer that question. No, for me, the favorite section of the Bible is probably chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And although I've shared slices before in different inappropriate conversations, uh, even back in the long scripture episode, number 150, opening the scriptures, I didn't cover the entire Sermon on the Mount. I saved it, I guess. For a moment just like this. The Sermon on the Mount One day as he saw crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. 
like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar of the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, You must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, Do not make any vows. Do not say, By heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, By the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, By Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, By my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. 
You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as the true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you were only kind to your friends, how different are you from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good, so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage. Acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think that God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense his grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They are full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply, like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best, as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, Act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair. Brush your teeth. Wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you are doing. He'll reward you well. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths or corroded by rust or, worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you will most want to be, and end up being. Your eyes are the window into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. 
If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your window, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration for one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't have to fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether your clothes in the closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God. And you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone, by fussing in front of the mirror, ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting, so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality. God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Do not judge others so that God will not judge you. For God will judge you in the same way you judge others. And he will apply to you the same rules you apply to others. Why then do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye? How dare you say to your brother, Please, let me help you take that speck out of your eye when you have a log in your own eye. You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, They will only turn and attack you. Do not throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will only trample them underfoot. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks will receive, and anyone who seeks will find, and the door will be opened to those who knock. Would any of you, who are fathers, give your son a stone when he asks for bread? Or would you give him a snake when he asks for a fish? Bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. How much more then will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do for others what you want them to do for you. This is the meaning of the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. Go in through the narrow gate, because the gate to hell is wide, and the road that leads to it is easy, and there are many who travel it. But the gate to life is narrow, and the way that leads to it is hard, and there are few who find it. Be on guard against false prophets. They come to you looking like sheep on the outside, 
but on the inside they are really like wild wolves. You know them by what they do. Thorn bushes don't bear grapes, and briars don't bear figs. A healthy tree bears good fruit, but a poor tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a poor tree cannot bear good fruit. And any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then, you will know the false prophets by what they do. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do what my Father in heaven wants them to do. When the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you wicked people. So then, anyone who hears these words of mine and obeys them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain poured down, the rivers flooded over, the wind blew hard against that house. But it did not fall, because it was built on rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not obey them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain poured down, the rivers flooded over, the wind blew hard against that house, and it fell, and what a terrible fall that was. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at the way he taught. He wasn't like the teachers of the law. Instead, he taught with authority. A wise man wants to find crazy as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Voted for a Democrat or Republican lately? Seen any difference? Feeling crazy yet? There is a cure for political insanity. You just need an injection of common sense. Watch out, though. It's a very big needle. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. So note there the distinction between the words coming out of Jesus' mouth and just some of the many, many Tea Party Jesus Tumblr site words that have been attributed to the people who claim that they are Christians. They are leading this Christian nation, speaking on behalf of the Lord. Some of them as pastors. Some of them as political candidates. But in all cases, saying things that seem in many ways exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, part of the reason I have such esteem for this particular passage of Matthew's Gospel is that it is one of the longest-running quotations in the entire Bible attributed to Jesus of Nazareth, fairly early in his earthly ministry, as a matter of fact. He says that all of the things that you will read in the Law and in the Prophets are there and in place and not going away until he has accomplished his mission, which, by my reckoning, he did on the cross. I've talked about that elsewhere, though, in previous inappropriate conversations, including number 150, Opening the Scriptures. I won't repeat myself now, except to say that there may be some people who really find a deep meaning in the way the words sound in the King James Version of the Bible. Then again, there may be people who don't speak a word of Latin who find deep meaning in the way the words sound in the Latin Vulgate, uh, traditionally spoken in the Catholic Church for centuries and centuries, until my lifetime, or until very near my lifetime, as a matter of fact. How the words sound is one thing. Comprehending what they mean is quite another. And there was a point in time, a point we typically refer to as the Protestant Reformation, but I'm going to get into why that's not exactly true in the Different Dumber segment. There was a point in time 
when getting people to understand the Bible didn't mean dressing it up in the most ornate formal languages of the day. It actually meant breaking it down into terminology and phrases simple enough for even the illiterate common man to understand. Our different drummer today is John Wycliffe, but before I can get to Wycliffe, I think I need to get to maybe the the broader story, the bigger picture. So I'm going to share a little bit about Wycliffe's life from Wikipedia, but first I'm going to talk the Protestant Reformation from that same source, just to paint the picture. The Protestant Reformation, often referred to as simply the Reformation, was a schism from the Roman Catholic Church initiated by Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and other Protestant reformers in 16th century Europe. Although there had been significant earlier attempts to reform the Roman Catholic Church before Luther, such as those of Jan Hus, Peter Waldo, and John Wycliffe, it is Luther who is widely acknowledged to have started the Reformation with his 1517 work, The 95 Theses. Now, I want to pick up from there and say, what about those earlier sources? Because if 1517 is widely regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, you have to roll the clock back something like 150 years to get to the time period of John Wycliffe, still referring to Wikipedia articles. Wycliffe wrote his 33 conclusions in Latin and English, and it was an answer to the authority of the Pope. The masses, some of the nobility, rallied to him. Before any further steps could be taken, the Pope he was opposing, Gregory XI, died in the year 1378. So, that gives you some sense of what we're talking about when we're dealing with Wycliffe. Born in 1331, approximately, died in December 1384. His life began during a period where the Black Plague was still going on and stretched into its aftermath, and Wycliffe was greatly impacted by that aftermath. He had come to believe, based on the plague itself, that the world was coming to an end, and that before the year 1399 rolled into 1400, that all of these sort of... Uh, apocalyptic visions in scripture would come to pass. Now, I'm not citing Wycliffe here as somebody whose views I share. I think that in many ways, if I were to read the 33 conclusions that he offered, I'd find a lot of them to be, you know, not to my liking. I would disagree strongly, in other words, with Wycliffe as a thinker. I say this as a non-Catholic. In the very first uh, somewhat poor sound quality recording of inappropriate conversations, I refer to myself as somebody who's so Protestant that I am part of a tradition that is a Protestant movement of a Protestant movement. I may reform away from traditional Protestant Reformation views. In fact, even since then, if you listen to Walk the Earth, you might get a sense that I'm even a reform away from that. You have to take three or four very large strides to get from my worldview to Roman Catholicism. But that doesn't mean that any point of view that purports to be a reform of Catholicism is going to be to my liking. I am not Calvinist, even even in the remotest. Again, uh, the, that line from Roman Catholicism to the Episcopalian view to United Methodism to what I'm, I view now, uh, that path was never Calvinist, really, at any point in time. So the fact that Wycliffe has what I might consider to be some Calvinist notions makes his thought process unattractive to me, quoting Wikipedia. 
Wycliffe's followers were known as Lollards, and followed his lead in advocating predestination, iconoclasm, and Caesaropapism, in attacking the veneration of the saints, the sacraments, requiem masses, transubstantiation, monasticism, and the very existence of the papacy. In other words, this guy's way more hardline than I think I would ever be from a worldview perspective. Let's just take these things one at a time. My view on time, which has been documented in a couple of significant previous inappropriate conversations, one, simply dealing directly with the notion of whether time itself is real, the other talking about our experience of time needing to be understood more vertically than horizontally, I don't believe in predestination. I think everything we're experiencing is happening simultaneously. That's a very different thing than believing that um, God knows what's going to happen in the future, because it calls into question the very notion of future. My ideas, by the way, are not new. They predate Wycliffe by at least 400, 500 years, going back to the time of Boethius. But all the same, Wycliffe and I are not on the same page when it comes to predestination. As far as iconoclasm goes, I do, I do share my disdain for the notion of worshipping images or taking the notion of focusing on an object in meditation maybe one or two steps too far. But I don't know that I would take that to the extreme of destroying statues and relics. So, again, not on the same page there either. And I'm a big advocate for the separation of church and state. I would love to think that even if I lived back then at this time, I wouldn't try to solve the problem of the disproportionate power of the church by marrying it to the power of the king and making one thing out of a church-state entity. I would probably go in the other direction, because you can solve a problem in more than one way, and I'm not sure Wycliffe's solution to the power of the church was the right solution to the power of the church. So I'm not advocating in this case, Wycliffe is a theologian because I agreed with his theology. What I want to do is talk a little bit about Wycliffe from the perspective of the response that he elicited, because the one thing that I do like about Wycliffe is the fact that he actually was very passionate, and passionate way before some of the people that we would hear about later, starting with Martin Luther, about translating the Bible, the uh, New Testament in particular, into a language that everyone could understand. Do not presume, as some within the ancient church hierarchical structures did, that everyone sitting at the feet of Jesus or standing in the periphery listening to that Sermon on the Mount which I just shared, in common English language, were capable of understanding um, a detailed, uh, thoroughly theological view. There's a lot of hard words that Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't pull any of those punches. I didn't skip around at all. He's talking about the fact that what is in your heart matters most, and that for someone to pretend that because they haven't broken the law itself, but contemplated it, and contemplated it fervently, that there's that there's no harm in that. That if the only thing stopping you from committing adultery or murder or stealing and embezzling is the fact that there's some harsh law or some grave consequences facing you if you do it, you're not in the right place morally. You don't get to feel exonerated from any consequences of that misbehavior. Jesus shares these ideas with very, very uh, dark and harsh language, recommending that somebody who's in that state incapable of saving himself from his you know, polluted heart would be better off ripping his eyes out than presuming that he's safe because he hasn't acted on those urges. Those kinds of words are hard words that Jesus is sharing with his audience, but sharing with that audience in words that they were capable of understanding. In an audience of people, a crowd, as it's referred to 
by Matthew, the gospel writer, that presumably had people of all ages in it, some capable of reading, some incapable of reading, some functionally illiterate, and probably relatively few who would have been scribes, as they're called, or Pharisees. So from time to time, when I share with people that the church itself, the hierarchy of the church, has burned people at the stake for the crime of giving a legibly and intelligible written Bible to somebody who desperately wants to read the words in that Bible. I, I, every now and then I get openly doubted. Didn't really happen that way. You're, you're not telling it as it is. Let me tell you that the, uh, the desire of the Roman Catholic hierarchical structure to prevent common people from reading the Bible as it was written, and something where you might want to question the motives there a little bit, why would the church be so obsessed with preventing Christians from reading the New Testament? Well, it could be the simple fact that sometimes if you put a little bit of knowledge into the hands of somebody who's basically a political operator, you're going to get all kinds of perverse ideas about what Jesus actually said or what it meant when Jesus said the things he said. You end up with, you know, again, uh, Rick Santorum's going to die on the hill of opposing gay marriage as opposed to uh, surrendering his will to the cross of Christ, which is a more biblical worldview. So it could be that the, the church was kind of aware had a premonition about how polluted things could get if the common man was reading, say, the, uh, the far more theological views of Paul and misunderstanding them completely. Or it could be that the church structure was afraid that if somebody was reading the Bible as it was written in language they could understand, they might have a different perspective about what Jesus meant for women in ministry when he spoke to the woman, the Samaritan woman, while she was getting water from the well. They might have a different point of view about a lot of things. Right now, if you read the Gospels as they are, you'd have a very different point of view about feeding the poor than what you'll hear from most political candidates today. Now, here's what Wikipedia says at the end of their article about Wycliffe, and it is the reason I'm naming Wycliffe a different drummer. The Council of Constance declared Wycliffe a heretic, on May 4th, 1415. Now this is, again, several decades after his death. They banned his writings. The council declared that Wycliffe's works should be burned and his remains removed from consecrated ground. This order, confirmed by Pope Martin V, was carried out in 1428, roughly 13 years later. Wycliffe's corpse was exhumed and burned and the ashes cast into the River Swift, which flows through the town of Lutterworth. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church, so opposed to the idea that, among other things, somebody would translate the Bible into everyday English, decided that because they'd missed the opportunity to arrest Wycliffe before his death in 1384 and burn him ceremonially from the stake, did the best they could in the absence of that option, which was digging up his bones and ceremonially burning his bones at the stake. This is church history. This is Christian history. And a lot of times when you weigh what Jesus actually said in the Sermon on the Mount and find it to be almost diametrically opposed to the things that the Tea Party Jesus website is showing us is being attributed to Jesus, or at least attributed as the Christian worldview through the mouths of not just political candidates, but pastors and priests. You line those two things up against each other. And it's pretty easy to understand how even in our age, if we were the kind of culture that burned people at the stake, you might actually get the equivalent of burning people at the stake 
if we elect the wrong people to positions of political power, and if we invest too much time in the wrong kinds of churches, and maybe some of those wrong kinds of churches are very long-established and politically powerful parishes. In Christian culture, I think it means more than one thing to use the expression, I love the Bible, or I love the scriptures. I think I could easily accuse myself of being one of those people who loves the Bible. I've just shared, for the, not, not the first time in the history of inappropriate conversations, a long-running quotation that I think reflects my passion. But I think a lot of times when you look at people who believe Jesus said things he didn't say, like... Things like uh, love the sinner but hate the sin, those things that Jesus did not say. People who believe that, I think when they say they love the Bible, they love the Bible much more symbolically. It's an idea. It's a shield. It's a badge. It's a fashion. It's something that you can put on like an heir. So if there's one point to today's inappropriate conversation, it's that I think those people who love Harry Potter enough to speak chapter and verse on what J.K. Rowling wrote for her characters, and have a degree of passion about those characters being represented accurately, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. That is, in some ways, how I feel about the Bible. I would take it one step further, though, and just to settle the rhetorical question I started off this show with, I'm not one of those people who believes that Jesus of Nazareth is a fictional character in the best-selling work of fiction in the history of publishing, I believe that the accounts are as close to real as you could expect to get from that point in human history, and that the oral tradition that we scoff at sometimes, when you hear people like Richard Dawkins use expressions like Chinese whispers through time, perhaps insufficiently respect the power of a long-standing oral tradition? No, I'm willing to grant that that's probably as close to an accurate telling of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as we could possibly get. The fact that it it ends in that seventh chapter a little bit choppy, jumping from one idea to the next pretty quickly, might be a fair indication that there's uh, pieces and parts that were omitted and lost, uh, cobbled together, if you will. It doesn't make the account feel to me more fictional. If anything, it makes the account to me feel more real, like the scratchiness of an old record being more likely to be a genuine recording of Louis Armstrong's original band than it would be if it was a little bit too slick and a little bit too perfect. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And in fact, IC underscore Greg is pretty much the best way to find me. Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg. SoundCloud, I've shared clips and sort of hints of the earliest shows of inappropriate conversations working my way toward the present day slowly but surely. You'll find me there as IC underscore Greg. I've already mentioned Facebook. There's a page for Walk the Earth and a page for Inappropriate Conversations. And both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth share the RSS feed at the website, inappropriateconversations.org, and on places like Stitcher.com and iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
She's also very bold yes. and um, not afraid to back down. I mean, she stands up to Tarkin right. on the bridge of his ship yep, she does. and says some, something to the extent of, um, the more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip through your fingers. He's like towering over oh, Vader yeah, and Tarkin she's not both. Afraid. And she's n- I think that was a nice choice, too. Not only is Carrie Fisher very smart uh-huh. and um, articulate, but she's small. So it's a yes. nice contrast to see this small woman be so independent and fierce, you yeah. know, standing up against something that's so much bigger than her. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours. The Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. <laughs> 